Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Fifteen years ago, the U.S. began its invasion and occupation of Iraq. With the recent deaths of seven U.S. airmen in a helicopter crash, it reminds us that the U.S. is still in Iraq. We'll reflect on 15 years in Iraq. Also, the White Wednesdays protests continue in Iran. I'll talk with an Iranian-American academic who explains why women are taking off their headscarves. Don't forget, you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. On March 19, 2003, George Bush spoke from the Oval Office and announced the invasion of Iraq. I'll talk with Iraq War veteran Vincent Emanuele in a moment about the 15th anniversary of the invasion. But first, in this montage of voices, you'll hear from President Bush, Donald Rumsfeld, John McCain, and Iraq War opponent Barbara Lee. The danger is clear. Using chemical, biological, or one-day nuclear weapons obtained with the help of Iraq... The terrorists could fulfill their stated ambitions and kill thousands or hundreds of thousands of innocent people in our country or any other. The United States and other nations did nothing to deserve or invite this threat, but we will do everything to defeat it. We've entered a new security environment, arguably the most dangerous the world has known, and if we're to continue to live as free people, we cannot go back to thinking as the way the world thought on September 10th. Once these people are gone, that we will be welcomed as liberators. But these guys are, are the real bad guys, and they're telling everybody, we're going to shoot you. We come to Iraq with respect for its citizens, for their great civilization, and for the religious faiths they practice. We have no ambition in Iraq except to remove a threat and restore control of that country to its own people. Now, this resolution will pass, although we all know that the president can wage a war even without it. However difficult this vote may be, some of us must urge the use of restraint. Our country is in a state of mourning. Some of us must say, let's step back for a moment. Let's just pause just for a minute and think through the implications of our actions today so that this does not spiral out of control. The United States of America has the sovereign authority to use force in assuring its own national security. That duty falls to me as Commander-in-Chief. By the oath I have sworn, by the oath I will keep. That's the sound of day one of the shock and awe campaign in Iraq on March 20th, 2003. With me is Vincent Emanuele. He's an Iraq War veteran, and we're going to talk about the Iraq War 15 years on. Thanks for joining us, Vince. Thanks for having me. Where were you 15 years ago? 
15 years ago, I was in Kuwait awaiting orders to join our unit. I had just finished the School of Infantry, so I joined at sort of a perfect time. I joined the United States Marine Corps in September of 2002. And you're from a military family. Yes. Uh, my grandfather had two Purple Hearts from service in World War II, spent 36 months in combat in Anzio and in Italy, where his family was originally from. My father served during Vietnam, and my brother has done tours of duty in Somalia, Afghanistan, and Iraq. So there you were in uh, in Kuwait awaiting um, your service, and you hear this address, and you what, what did your service end up being like? Much different than what the U.S. administration talked about. And hearing George Bush talk about this so-called respect for the Iraqi people when throughout boot camp and throughout the School of Infantry, we referred to Iraqis as sand N-word, ragheads, camel jockeys, and terrorists. Uh, We learned two or three words, usually stop, put your hands up, or lay down. And that was about all we knew about the Iraqi culture and society. Uh, We had the idea and we were trained in the United States Marine Corps to go and to kill everything in sight and then let the army and other branches of the service sort of clean up after what we do. That is what the United States Marine Corps has been used for for many years. And so it's interesting as we move along the years here after 9-11, you know, at first we were told we're going in. It's going to be chemical warfare. We're going to lose maybe one-third of our unit. Saddam's got all kinds of weapons that he's going to use. The Republican Guard is going to be one of the most fierce fighting forces the U.S. has ever faced. And, of course, none of that was true. But what ended up being true was that we found ourselves then in a counterinsurgency operation. And so when we got back from our first deployment, and this was in 2004, we were then being told – Now we're going to do stability and support operations. So we were told, look, no more just clearing out buildings, shooting at everything in sight. We're going to have to be a policing force for the people of Iraq. This was after, of course, an entire deployment where we were told to kill everything in sight, to move our way up to Baghdad, and then to secure the country and overthrow, of course, Saddam Hussein. And those stability and support operations actually didn't become – Uh, counterinsurgency operations until a year or two after that. And so by 2004, we had thought that the war was over. Of course, you'll remember George Bush landing on an aircraft carrier and announcing mission accomplished. The war was over. We were told the same thing back in our base in 29 Palms, California. And everyone, of course, was quite excited about that. No less than two or three months later, we were told, prepare for your second deployment and get ready for a third. Now, uh, ironically, these airmen who just recently died in Iraq in a helicopter crash, seven of them, uh, were were at the same place where you did some of your service. Yes. So this is Al-Qaim, Iraq, which is located in western Iraq on the border of Syria and Iraq, just south on the banks of the Euphrates, surrounded by what is a moonscape of sand and, and desert. But then as you get closer to the Euphrates, it's increased vegetation, really a beautiful farming area and a nice little town. And I say that in that way and using that description because I think all too often people in the United States and not by their own fault, they don't have an opportunity to travel abroad or see these places. But it would remind you of a place you'd see down in Louisiana on the banks of a river, you know, people hanging out, people farming, people hanging out with their families, drinking mint tea and so forth. And when we arrived in al in 2004 in August, it was clear that the situation has cha- had changed drastically. 
We were there for less than a day, and our commanding officer, Captain Rao, was killed along with five other people. Captain Rao was one of the most well-trained, well-disciplined Marines in the entire unit. So for us, the conclusion was, if Captain Rao could be murdered within a day on this deployment, what does that mean for someone who's been in for a couple of years and doesn't have nearly the knowledge or expertise that someone like him has? From then on out, the deployment in Al-Qaim became quite brutal. Um, we killed a lot of innocent people in Al-Qaim. The rules of engagement were very loose. There were Marines taking pictures with dead bodies, mutilating dead bodies, torturing prisoners on a regular basis. And I think there's many reasons for this. One of those reasons is that in such a far outpost in western Iraq, we didn't have many media figures around, nor did we have many high-ranking generals or officials from the Marine Corps to come around and keep an eye on us. So those duties taking prisoners, torturing prisoners, questioning prisoners, clearing homes, setting up vehicle checkpoints became routine and routinely criminal behavior was taking place throughout that deployment. And we lost uh, several men from our unit and we killed, of course, many times more Iraqis. So many of them, of course, were not even combat- combatants. I think a lot of us don't really know, and there was a lot of controversy about how many people died in in the war in Iraq. Mm -hmm. And I remember you testified in Congress in 2008 about not any battle damage assessments being done when you guys were out doing these things. Nobody counted the number of people or nobody really did – nobody cared about that. Nobody cared about the body count. We never kept track of anyone we killed. In fact – the first person whose life I took was a person who was trying to plant an IED on the side of a road when we were heading back from a resupply mission to a retransmission site, bringing them wood so they could burn little campfires at night because it got quite cold there in the winter months. And this gentleman was trying to plant an IED on the side of the road. We chased him down. Our Humvee crashed. I got out of the Humvee. This gentleman jumped into a drainage ditch. I didn't know if he was armed or not, so I jumped over the drainage ditch, pointed my weapon into the drainage ditch, and fired as many rounds as I could, killing him and finding out, of course, he didn't have a weapon. And then we drug his body out of the ditch and laid it there on the side of the farm field um, for, I would say, three or four weeks it laid there as we would drive by in subsequent days on patrols and people would laugh and point and say, hey, Emanuele, you know, that, that's your kill over there laying there like a, a, a deer on the side of the road. And those kinds of scenes became quite normal. By the end of the deployment, the Iraqi police forces that we were working with were routinely captured murdered, their heads chopped off, and their bodies placed on the side of the road. So that was a clear sign to anyone in the region. If you wanted to work with U.S. forces, this was going to be the consequences of doing that. And so, you know, as now we look back and we say, oh, my goodness, you know, how could uh, Al-Qaim be one of the last places that ISIS controlled back in November of last year? And by 2005 in September, outside of of Al-Qaim, there was a sign that read, Welcome to the Islamic Republic of Al-Qaim. And this is nine years before uh, before ISIS, before the Islamic State. And so I think it's important to realize that these actions, the U.S. occupation, the militarism, the war crimes, this creates a situation that can uh, birth a child like ISIS. You know, ISIS is the child of war and it's the child of U.S. war. 
And I think it's really important for Americans to understand that that is what our tax dollars have been paying for. That is what our resources have been used for. That's what all of these lives and and treasure, you know, according to Brown University, it was $5.6 trillion we've spent on the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And at home, of course, we have places like Flint, Michigan, East Chicago, Indiana, which isn't too far from my hometown, where thousands of residents can't even get clean water. And yet we're spending trillions of dollars overseas, not to make America more safe, in fact, to make us much less safe, and in the process, killing many innocent people's lives. I'm talking with Vincent Emanuele. He's an Iraq War veteran, and we're discussing the Iraq War 15 years later. You know, I I shared with you earlier a, a Pew chaired a Pew Research Center uh, uh, poll about some of what Americans feel about the the war in Iraq today, and it's still pretty evenly divided. I think forty eight percent think it's uh, was a mistake, and forty three percent think it wasn't a mistake. And the tales that we talk about and the things we tell each other about the war is well. If we'd have stuck it out, it would have been better. Mm-hmm. And we, if we, we withdrew the troops, and that's what birthed ISIS, and that's right. what gave us all the problems. Right. Uh, what do you make of the ongoing debate that people have about the war in Iraq? Well, first of all, I give a lot of credit to yourself and other programs like this, stations like WBZ, because I think people will recognize that there won't be too many stories about the 15th year anniversary of the war in Iraq. I don't blame poor and working class people who work where I live 60, 70, 80 hours a week in steel mills at gas stations and restaurants. They don't have the time to read book after book, peer-reviewed journal after peer-reviewed journal about what's happening in Iraq. I largely blame the mainstream press for not having the kind of attention placed on this war and on U.S. militarism and on conflicts abroad as it should be. When a nation is at war, it is the most important thing that a nation can do. It is the most destructive thing. It is also the most expensive thing a nation can do. I think it's extremely important for the people, the journalists, the writers, the radio hosts across the United States to spend the kind of time that's needed talking about this war and interviewing not just military personnel, not just folks from the RAND Corporation or folks who've sat in the Pentagon, but interviewing Iraqi people who are on the ground experiencing this, interviewing Syrian people, Afghan people, the soldiers and veterans who've come home to talk about these wars. It's not surprising to me that half of the country or close to half of the country is still confused about whether or not the invasion was worthwhile or not worthwhile. And then, of course, everything afterward from the surge in 2007. I mean, we have to go back and and sort of look at the timeline. At first, we have to remember George Bush and his administration made the argument that Iraq possessed weapons of mass destruction. And in light of 9-11, and I know now I'm working with people who weren't even alive then, which is kind of crazy, but it's hard to remember, I think, folks, to remember just how crazy and how fearful the atmosphere was following 9-11. Americans were scared, and, and I think rightfully so. And if you look back at the news reports and you look back at the way the administration was speaking, potential mushroom clouds and so forth, it's not surprising. So we had the justification that they used at first was weapons of mass destruction. The weapons of mass destruction, of course, did not exist. Then it was Iraq was tied to al-Qaeda. Then we found out that Iraq actually had no ties to al-Qaeda. Well, then we were already in the country. So then the excuse was if we leave, things will become chaotic. So then we did the surge in 2007. Everyone will remember General Petraeus and so forth. Then 
things collapsed again in 2009, 2010. The same Shia militias that we were fighting against, uh, Muqtada al-Sadr's groups in 2004 and 2005, were then the same Shia militias we were giving money and arms to by 2010, 2011. Then the Arab Spring takes place in 2011. And a lot of the Sunni groups throughout Iraq became very emboldened during that period. And I think rightfully so. As you know, and I think as some of your li- the listeners know, the government that we put in charge, particularly the Maliki government, was a very sectarian government, and they treated the Sunni population in horrific ways. So it wasn't surprising to me that then, by 2014, the Sunni population rose up, and of course, there are different factions, and it is more complex than just saying that this is all of Sunnis in Iraq, but... ISIS is comprised of Sunnis who have lived in Iraq. There are foreign fighters, but we saw those signs then going back, as I mentioned, to 2005, when there were already signs outside of the city saying, welcome to the Islamic Republic of Al-Qaim. It was clear to us from the beginning that the people who controlled those areas, who lived in those areas for many, many generations, would eventually control those areas again. I mean, even if we look in 2014, when ISIS took the second largest city in Iraq, Mosul, a city of 2 million people, there were supposedly 60,000 Iraqi fighters there from the Iraqi army and security forces fighting 1,500 ISIS fighters who defeated the army and then took over the city. So that then brings into question also, what kind of training have we been providing Iraqi forces over the course of the last 15 years where 60,000 of their troops couldn't take 1,500 fighters? Uh, that, that, I think, brings into major questions what the U.S. has been doing, uh, who's been training these forces, and we haven't even really touched on, and I know we won't probably have adequate time, but just to mention that at one point during the war, close to 30% of those forces were made up of private security contractors, which is a new element, and, and I think an element that's been talked about more and more as the years have gone on. But again, extremely disconcerting when you have a private entity whose sole function as a corporation is to make money, providing services and doing the kinds of tasks that would normally be tasked out to the U.S. military. Right now, we have a situation in Iraq where we've got around five, six, seven thousand fighters. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a couple thousand in Syria. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, we still have more in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And we make the same kind of arguments that we're recalling that we had about Iraq t- t- 10 years ago. If we pull out, there will be chaos. If we pull out, it'll be destabilizing. We've got to stay. President uh, Trump wants to stay in Syria because he's worried about it becoming another Iraq and destabilizing more, uh, you know, mm. ironically. Uh, what do you make of the of the perpetual nature of our, our, our argument? Well, it's been 17 years since 9-11. I think we should look at the math and we should ask, do Americans feel safer today? Is the world a more secure place? Is the geopolitical situation in the Middle East and the Far East and North Africa more stable today than it was before 9-11? Or is it more destabilized today? Is there more chaos? Chaos in the seven countries that we've bombed since 9-11, Iraq, 
total disaster. Libya, complete disaster. Syria, a complete disaster. Yemen, a complete disaster. Somalia, a complete disaster. And Pakistan, also a complete disaster. These are the seven nations that we've bombed since 9-11. In every case that the United States has increased drone strikes, assassination programs, special forces operations, and so forth, including Afghanistan. You know, not to cut, I, I would love to jump on President Trump, but I have to be very fair here. Let's remember that the first major foreign policy decision that Barack Obama made was to significantly increase troops in Afghanistan, sending another 40,000 people to Afghanistan and doubling down on what is now America's longest war. So we have to challenge, I think, the concept of American empire, the concept of American uh, exceptionalism, the concept of American militarism. I think it's easy. I think we actually have a good position. I think the one thing we haven't done over the last 17 years since the, the war on terror and over the last 15 years in Iraq has been to demilitarize. Let's stop sending arms to different factions. Let's stop sending arms to different nations. The United, the United States is the world's largest exporter of arms around the world. So, I, you know, and this even drawing this to what's happening at home, as I mentioned to you earlier, we have shootings at home in schools. 30,000 people being killed with, with guns in the United States are killing themselves every year. It doesn't seem surprising to me when the United States is a nation that has been consistently at war since I was born. I think it's very hard to tell children not to be violent when they see their leaders, when they see their elected officials solve their problems through violence. And so my, my argument would be, let's try the one thing that we haven't tried so far, and that's to demilitarize the situation. And I think if anything else, what we've tried over the last 17 years, as, as I've just said, and I think as people know, um, has created massive amounts of chaos and death and destruction. And I think it's time for us to try an alternative option and to step back and, and really reflect on what we've done and where we've been. Vincent Emanuele is an Iraq War veteran. We've been reflecting on the Iraq War 15 years later, and you're from Michigan City, Indiana, and you yes. have an event going at Politics, Arts, Roots, and Culture. That's PARC. It's an acronym for yes, an organization it is. You're, um, you're active with. It's a community cultural center and progressive organizing center in Michigan City, Indiana, located at 1713 Franklin Street. Come out, check out the event. It's on Saturday, March 24th at 5 p.m. Coming up after the break, we're going to talk about Iran and uh, the compulsory hill hijab, hijab in Iran. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. In Iran, there are women and some men who are protesting the compulsory hijab. The protests are known as White Wednesday protests, and there was just a flurry of activity around International Women's Day. With me is Nahid Siamdust, and she wrote about why Iranian women are taking off their headscarves in the New York Times. And she's also the author of a new book called The Soundtrack of the Revolution, The Politics of Music in Iran. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. 
I think whenever there is talk about the hijab, people here in the West are trying to wear it without getting hassled. And some people in Iran are trying to take it off without getting hassled. It's a little strange. It is indeed. I suppose what it comes down to is choice and just giving the women the choice to wear what they want, whether it's in the West or in Iran. And here there are pressures coming from certain quarters following Donald Trump's presidency mostly. And in Iran, it's uh, following the Islamic Revolution in 1979 with the institution of an Islamic Republic that didn't even happen overnight because women had the choice to um, put whatever they wanted on their bodies and heads. But once the Islamic Republic took office, um, they decided that within these Islamic parameters, women should dress Islamically. And so they did this really gradually. They first started banning women who didn't have the right Islamic uh, dress from entering official buildings and official institutions like universities and so on. And then bit by bit, they started enforcing it in the public realm. Well, this latest phase of this White Wednesday protest, it seems to have kind of ricocheted from social media outside the country to inside the country and and back and forth. Uh, How do you see what happened? So it's a bit complicated and some people would really fight sort of that depiction of how things happened. A lot of people would say that You know, women have been fighting for greater rights in Iran for years now. What happened was that this journalist, Masih Ali Nejad, who was in Iran until about, you know, less than 10 years ago, she was a journalist there. Um, Once she'd set herself up in the U.S., she started this campaign called My Stealthy Freedom, where she encouraged women to put photographs of themselves taking off their hijab in public spaces on the Internet. So she had a website for it, and women went to the website and put images of themselves without the headscarf on her Facebook page. And eventually... Um, the way she explained it to me, because I talked to her about it, she said, you know, I I realized that I wasn't really paying attention to the hijab issue. My focus was much more on political issues. And I realized that whenever I talked about the hijab, I, I got a lot of reception from women in Iran. They really cared about this issue. And then she started the um, White Wednesdays campaign to take this campaign into a more sort of public um, forum because the White Wednesdays campaign wasn't about taking off your headscarf. It was about wearing white to express solidarity with women who believed in choice over the hijab. And the first woman who took off her headscarf, Vida Movahed, um, in December, I believe December 27th, the one who stood on that utility box and held her white headscarf at the end of a stick, she did it on a Wednesday and she was holding a white scarf. We don't actually know her allegiance to the White Wednesdays campaign or whether she did it because she wanted to be part of that movement, but she did it on a Wednesday and it was white. So a lot of people believe that she was sort of a culminating result of this campaign that's been going on for some time. But of course, women have been trying to gain greater freedoms on all sort of fronts in Iran for many years, even before Masih Alinejad started her campaign. It sounds like the government in Iran has had um, mixed reactions to the campaign on International Women's Day, just before that, they sentenced a woman to two years in prison. But they talked also about not cracking down harshly or even imposing fines anymore and just re-educating women about the good things about the hijab and kind of giving them a, a mind talking to or something. Right. And these laws are partly rooted in the difficulty of really imposing the hijab, you know, after the revolution, because women had the freedom of choice. They really fought hard against the imposed hijab. 
even the punishments for not having the hijab are not very severe at all. I forget exactly, but something like two weeks of t- detention or, you know, a small fine, basically. And the government really did seem torn about how to handle the issue. So on the day when Vida Mama had that first woman climb the utility box, they did say, we will only educate women, we won't arrest them. But they did go ahead and arrest Vida Mubahed, who was um, then released a few weeks later. And since then, I think perhaps because dozens of women have copied this act, this sort of act of defiance, they have decided that they need to be a bit stricter to uh, perhaps, uh, you know, uh, finish this uh, campaign once and for all. And so one of these women did receive a two-year sentence. The whole issue of hijab has become quite contested and it's become sort of issue number one in the Iranian public realm and on social media. And a lot of people are talking about it and, and waiting to see what the government's next steps will be. I'm talking with Nahid Siandust, and she is author of a book called The Soundtrack of the Revolution, Politics of Music in Iran. The book that you've written has an interesting parallel, I think, to the hijab thing. Freedom of expression is something that is on an upwards trajectory, according to your book. And, uh, you know, music is not completely banned anymore as it was initially. And it seems like free expression is something you've got to factor in if you're going to have an open society. And that's what's going on in Iran. I think uh, the Islamic Republic has become gradually more open, of course, since its early days. It's now the revolution happened nearly 40 years ago, and there was such strict measures against music in the first decade. And if you look at the musical scene in Iran today, no one would believe, uh, you know, no one from sort of the 1980s would have believed that this is what you would see sort of three decades onward. So the space has gradually opened up more. And of course, the same has happened in as far as women's clothes are concerned in the, you know, very sort of uh, strict revolutionary period of the 1980s, right after 1979, especially when the war with Iraq was raging. There was great policing of the hijab going on on the streets by the morality police. The morality police has continued doing its work, but it's been much more relaxed. And, you know, at this point in Iran, you can be in spaces where women are barely wearing the headscarf, the headscarf's resting somewhere on their shoulders rather than on their heads, or it's, you know, it's so thin that it's more like a bandana. So the women have been pushing the hemlines, and it's really a credit to them because they've just been pushing the boundaries bit by bit um, so that today a lot of women don't even wear the coat uh, when, you know, in the 1980s, the coat had to be below the knees, for example. So um, people, and especially the youth and uh, women, have been pushing for greater freedoms, and we see that both in music and in hijab hemlines. You talk about your book being an alternative history to post-revolutionary Iran through the use of music. So you're telling a story with the people you feature in the book. That's right. So I look at post-revolutionary Iran through the kinds of uh, conversations that you see in the music, both through the heroic musicians, really, who through their attempts have created this mass channel of communication within the given confines and created this space where in the absence of a free public sphere, people have been able to have all kinds of conversations about whether it's uh, rights or, you know, role of religion in society, um, greater freedoms, and so on. And on the other hand, I also look at the evolution of the state itself. So how the um, official bodies of the Islamic Republic have with time also adapted to this changing population that has asked for these greater rights and so allows many more things than it did initially. It seems like technology has played a role here, that uh, it's so easy to reduplicate or have an underground music scene that stomping out this is kind of futile. 
Absolutely. So the internet has had a great role to play, and not just the internet, but also satellite, the whole sphere of satellite television channels, because a lot of Iranians have satellite dishes and and they tune in to channels that are broadcast in either from you know Los Angeles, where a lot of Iranians migrated to after the revolution, or even Europe and Dubai and so on. So people really partake in that space. The satellite television channels are very important. Um, the internet, social media apps, Telegram today, even sort of middle aged and older people are on Telegram. And I call that sphere sort of a huge national private sphere because it's a public sphere, really, fully and completely. A majority of Iranians are partaking in it, but it's not approved by the state. So all kinds of discourses that wouldn't be allowed, let's say, on state television, are happening there. Well, let's listen to a song. Uh, which song should we hear? I think a song that really expresses so much for the post-revolutionary period is uh, Morga Sahar, The Morning Bird, which hails from the time of um, the constitutional era in the early 20th century of Iran. It seems like this song, this Morning Bird song, it's expressing the need for openness, freedom, no matter what the regime, it seems to apply. That's right. And I think it's so powerful because it uses the Persian tropes of the nightingale and rose, the golobolbol, but really activates them into a political sort of meaning and asks the caged bird to break free. It was written at the time, sort of following the constitutional era during the Reza Pahlavi period, and has since been covered by so many musicians and really points to this long arc of sort of demands for a greater freedoms and justice in Iranian society. And uh, Mohammad Azar Shajarian, who revived it again in 1991 after the revolution, he sang it in honor of its composer who had just passed away, Mortaza Neidabud, a Jewish musician. And um, since then, people have asked him to perform this song over and over again at the end of every concert he's given. It's a sort of ritual of protest where within the format of the concert, which is one of the few occasions in which Iranians can come together in public in great numbers and express total strangers together, express a certain kind of sentiment together, political sentiment in this case, ask him to perform this, and he does it with great pleasure, and people sing along um, the refrain, uh, which asks for the universe to sort of um, grant Iranians this wish for greater rights.
We're talking about the soundtrack of the revolution, the politics of music in Iran with Nahid Siamdust. We'll be back with more after the break. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. I'm talking with Nahid Siandust, and she is author of a book called The Soundtrack of the Revolution, Politics of Music in Iran. It's an alternative history of post-revolutionary Iran through the use of music, and we're talking about a couple of the songs and people featured in the book. There is outright rap music and uh, things that people might not expect going on in Iran. Absolutely. And the hip-hop scene is actually very large. I would say that rap music, until a year or two ago, was for uh, several years the most popular kind of music among Iran's youngest. And um, it really got started by a few musicians in the early 2000s. And uh, Surush Lashkari, also known as Hichkas, is called the godfather of rap or rap of Farsi in Iran. He started a website, 021 point. Zero two one is the area code for Iran for Tehran, and I started this website and just invited others to post and um, post their songs. It really started there, and it's a burgeoning um, field. Really, Persian hip hop today. There are several musicians who collaborate with Western musicians and musicians elsewhere, and it's a very potent field because it ties in so neatly into Iranian culture, which is a very verbal culture. Of course, Persian poetry is one of our most prized sort of culture reforms. And so rap came very naturally to uh, young Iranians looking to make music. It also didn't require training. You didn't need musical training to make this music. Here's a little bit of Hitchcast. یعنی شهری که هرچی که توش میبینی باعث تحریکه تحریک روه تا تو آشغال دونی میفهمی تو هم آدم نیستی یا آشغال اینجا همه گرگه میخواه باشی مثل بره بزن چشو کوش تو من با کنم یه زرگه اینجا تهران لعنتی شوبی نیستش خبری از گل و بسنی چوبی نیستش اینجا چنگل بخور تو خورده نشی اینجا نصف بخده یا نصف عشی اختلاف طبقاتی اینجا بیداب میکنه روه مردم و زخمی و بیمار میکنه کنار همه فقیره و مایه داره خفه توی تاکسی همه میخواد کرایه نده حقیقه روشن خودتو به اون را نزن روشن درش میکنن پس به اون جا نزن خدا that's a little Hitchcast, and what's he saying there? Because uh, some of I was watching some of the YouTube videos of him, and his lyrics are, of course, like 
hip-hop and rap. It's, it's very expressive. That's right. So the piece is called Echtelaf, which has kind of a double meaning. It means both, it's, uh, means both inequality, but also discord. So the kind of discord that that kind of inequality can cause in society. But he's talking about the great inequalities, uh, economic inequalities that we see in Iran today, uh, which are really the roots for the recent protests that we saw there happening over New Year's, sort of end of December and in, into January, where a lot of uh, mostly men actually was a sort of heavily male sort of um, uh, protest, people who are uh, deprived of economic opportunities and other opportunities to be able to create meaningful and productive lives, um, finally got on, onto the streets and stated this kind of protest that they had. And I think Hitchcast's music, uh, more than 10 years ago, really foretold and pointed to this population. Do you have any gut feeling about the way things are going right now? Because we have a um, this urge for you know, liberalism. And we have uh, an economic system that wants to retain its privileges. And usually the economics guys win. It's true. But I think um, in the Iranian case, perhaps there's a little bit of hope because, and some people might even ridicule me for saying this, but because the supreme leader Ayatollah Khamenei has himself even pointed to this and highlighted this as a problem. And the people who are really filling their pockets through corruption are at the end of the day, people who have allegiance to him. And so perhaps with him noting the problem and making public statements, you know, the reason he's making these statements are existential ones. He saw the protests and there's that kind of um, real discontent in society. And perhaps that can be the catalyst for bringing about some change on that level, at least. Well, let's listen to another song here and tell us about this song. So that sounds like Hamid Nikpe's Chasu Chashok. Uh, I write about it in the book because he wrote it at the time following the 2009 Green Uprising. Um, back then, President Ahmadinejad had referred to the protesters who came out and, and uh, call, uh, called the elections rigged. He called them riffraff, Chasu Chashok. And... Um, the protesters really very quickly turned this against Ahmadinejad himself and called him Khasukhashak. And so Hamid Nikpe really, uh, you know, puts the finger on, on that sentiment among Iranians at the time and turns this into a song based in classical Persian music, which is a kind of music that is really, um, you know, uh, a lot of Iranians just uh, instantly sort of take to. Oh, 
I'm talking with Nahid Siandust, and she is author of a book called The Soundtrack of the Revolution, Politics of Music in Iran. We're going to go out on another song. Um, what are we going to hear here? So this song is Yared Abistani Man. It was initially the title track for a film made right at the time of the revolution. And since then, it's been picked up by uh, women's rights groups and reformist groups uh, in gatherings and in protests. They recall and rechant this song, which calls forth the days of having been in elementary school together. So it calls forth the days when all Iranians are young children in school learning things to make this a better country and a better nation and really goes back to that moment in time when they're all innocent children and want a better nation. And so in protest gatherings, it's a very simple song. It talks about, you know, you were my elementary school friend. But then it says, you know, if not you and me, uh, who else is going to make this a better place? So let's join hands and make this a better place. And uh, it's really become a protest chant by now. And uh, it's a quite powerful in these settings. Well, I think people would be interested in your book, Soundtrack of the Revolution, Politics of Music in Iran, an Alternative History of Post-Revolutionary Iran Through the Use of Music. Nahid Siamdust, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Tomorrow on Worldview, we're going to talk about immigration, and we hear a lot about politicians who are talking about immigration, but what do the world's great religions think about immigration? We'll find out tomorrow on Worldview. 
Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Galilee Abdullah and Anna Waters for production assistance. Thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. Thanks to Daniel Musisi for curating our music. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.